Morning. How's everybody doing? Good? Uh, I want to echo what Garrett said about pre-registration. We literally have people sitting out in the lobby right now because we ran out of room in the service. So if you can, if you haven't, uh, please just tell us when you're coming. Uh, if you, people are bringing their friends to hear about Jesus, we just we don't want to have them to sit out in the lobby. So if you can do that, that would be such a blessing. Well, we are excited because this morning is a, another baptism Sunday for us. Uh, we are baptizing seven people this morning, uh, spread throughout our three services, which is awesome. If you have not been baptized yet as a believer in Jesus, uh, sign up today. I know so many of you have, have made a decision to follow Christ just in the last month or two. Uh, some of you have been following Jesus for a year or two or longer, and you've never been baptized as a believer. Uh, sign up uh, today. We're going to do this again on April 25th. I want to see you in here on April 25th, okay? So you can sign up out in the uh, lobby. Uh, you can sign up through our app on our website. But uh, long story short, sign up. Okay. Uh, as more and more people get signed up to uh, be baptized, I want to take uh, just three minutes or so here before we get into our message to address one particular question uh, that we've got asked uh, many, many times in the last a month or so. And that's this question. Can my child uh, be baptized? Now, first of all, uh, the Bible teaches really clearly that baptism is meant to be for people after they choose to make a personal decision to accept Christ as their Savior. So baptism isn't something uh, for babies or for infants. But this is a particular question we've been getting a lot about, like, well, okay, but what about my 7-year-old or my 9-year-old or my 10-year-old? And this is a question that a lot of churches, Bible-believing churches, have wrestled with for a long time, and we have too, and we've talked about it a lot and prayed about it a lot. And what I'm going to tell you is we have come to the conclusion that we're going to ask that your children, before they be baptized, that obviously they be believers in Jesus, but they be at least, at minimum, uh, of youth group age. So that for us is a sixth grade before they get baptized here. Now, I'm going to explain uh, how we came to that a conclusion. But let me also say this. While the Bible is incredibly clear that baptism is only for those who've personally made a decision to follow Jesus, there's no age minimum in Scripture. Like, you're not going to open the Bible and see sixth grade. It's, it just isn't there. There are some areas of Scripture where we are given examples, where we are given uh, principles, but then we're left on our own to discern how to apply that in our context. Now, there's a box that you would apply it in, but within that box, there's room for interpretation of application. So you may, as a Bible-believing Christian, land in a different spot here, and that's okay. You may feel, your 10-year-old may feel compelled by the Holy Spirit that they need to be baptized, and you may feel like they should be baptized. Then by all means, get grandma and grandpa together and your friends and relatives, and maybe up at the lake this summer or at a pool, uh, baptize them. Absolutely. You should obey God if that's what he's telling you to do. But I just want to tell you why we landed on this uh, at least sort of youth groupish age as a minimum here at church. So I've been a pastor for 16 years, and every year I get asked so many times, a year, by people who come up to me and say, David, I was baptized when I was seven or when I was nine, and I want to know, can I get re-baptized? I'll say, why? And over and over they say, you know what? I barely remember it when I was seven years old. Whether they say, it didn't really mean anything to me when I was eight. Or, you know, when I was nine, I hadn't really fully realized my faith yet. They say, yeah, I believe God existed, but it wasn't until I went to camp when I was 16 years old or when I was in college or whenever that I really made my faith my own. It wasn't my parents' faith. 
I just want to tell you, I am totally uh, in this camp with you. If you're a parent of a kid this age, I have uh, not one, but two uh, eight-year-olds. And I absolutely know that and believe that they believe in Jesus. But I also know that it's all that they know at this point. They haven't yet had this chance to personally choose, are they going to go with the world? Or are they going to go with Christ? Uh, we've also had a number of parents ask us in the last a month or two, if we would do a baptism for their six-year-old or seven-year-old, but usually they'll say, but is it okay if they don't talk? And I think that's just another reason that we, we just need to wait. Because baptism is you, the person who has faith, going public to the world saying, I believe, I have chosen Jesus. And so we just kind of believe that in general practice, the best thing we can do for your kids and their long-term spiritual health and testimony is just to ask them to wait until they're older and we know that their faith is truly their own. And therefore, their baptism is always going to be something that's really meaningful to them as well. Okay, if you have more questions on this, feel free. You can send me an email. I will be out in the lobby afterwards. I would love to talk to you about it as well. Okay, let's jump into studying the Bible. Uh, everybody grab a Bible. There's a Bible uh, in the chair in front of you. We want everybody, we are a Bible studying, Bible teaching church. There's a Bible in front of you. Many of you bring your Bibles with you. You can always use your phone too. You tap a uh, renovation app, uh, then use the uh, tap Bible in weekly verses. We are on page 717. Uh, as a church, uh, this may be your first time here, but we've been going through the book of Luke in the Bible. Uh, Luke is one of four books on the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, two weeks ago, we skipped over a passage so we could come back to it today. It's a passage about Palm Sunday, and today is Palm Sunday in the Christian calendar. Uh, Palm Sunday is always the Sunday before Easter, and uh, Palm Sunday is the time when Jesus rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem. They laid palm branches down on the road. So that's what we're going to look at. So we're Luke chapter 19. So on page 717, look for that big number 19, and then you're going to follow and look for the little number 28, because that's where we kind of are in the chapter, verse 28. So I'll start that in just a second. <clears throat> Quench my thirst first. Okay. Verse 28, it says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. Okay, so... Let's just pause there for a moment. We're told that Jesus, he's going to enter into Jerusalem now on, on a colt. And he is approaching what's called those little two villages of Bethany and Bethphage. That's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So he's going to get on this colt. A colt is just like a young donkey. So he's going to get on this little donkey, and he's going to ride into the great city of Jerusalem. And as he comes in, he's going to announce himself in a whole bunch of different ways as king. Now, that's a point that you're going to see all over this passage. I hope it's just a shouting at you by the time we're finished with this. But you're going to see that his entry as king looks really different than any of us, or even really anybody back then, would have scripted a king's entry. See, back in those days, a king, when they entered an important town, they were supposed to come in on a mighty war horse. 
And they were supposed to be escorted by important people and an army and trumpets and banners and fanfare. And here comes Jesus just with a crowd of people. And it's quite an odd collection of people, right? You got uh, some wealthy people, even like the tax collector Zacchaeus, he's forgiven. Uh, You've got blind Bartimaeus, who we met just a few weeks ago. He's got a bunch of fishermen as his main disciples. He's got forgiven prostitutes. He's got former drunks and addicts. It's this whole eclectic crowd of people. But there's no trumpets, right? There's no banners. There's no army. There's not even a war horse. The king of kings is riding in, not even on a grown donkey, on this little donkey, a colt that no one's ever even ridden. Why? Well, I mean, why have the king of kings ride into this holy city on a little donkey? Well, what's fascinating about this is Jesus, as the Messiah, the king of kings, is actually fulfilling a 550-year-old prophecy from the Old Testament. So this is from the prophet Zechariah. It's just one verse, so we'll just throw it up on the screen for you. You can read about it later in the week if you want to. It's from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And here's the prophecy. It says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. That's a, another name for Mount Zion. It's in Jerusalem. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. And how does the king come to you? Lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the Jews had this prophecy that one day the king would come, the Messiah would come. And how would he come? He would come, shockingly, riding in on a colt. A foal of a donkey. And what does Jesus do? He rides in on a donkey. It's fascinating. Now, if you've heard this story before, some of you I know you, you grew up in church and you're familiar with this story. You know, sometimes familiarity can be a dangerous thing because we don't realize what's shocking about it. And I don't think we realize just how crazy it is that Jesus rides in a town with this huge crowd on a little donkey. So let me try and explain it to you. This would be like, okay, let's say Jesus never came to earth until the 21st century. And now he's on earth and he's doing his ministry. And he's just about to ride into a really important city like New York City or London or Washington, D.C. And Jesus rides into town on a bicycle. That, that, that's the connotation here, right? That's the, the parallel example. That's how it would have felt to people. You think about this, kings and foreign leaders... The president, when the president comes into Washington, D.C., right, he doesn't come on a bicycle, right? They come in a limo or like a caravan of black escalades, right? And you got to wait for 20 minutes as they go by. But here comes Jesus, essentially, on a bicycle into town. Now, my friends, this is not going to hinder Jesus' work, so don't you worry about Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't need all this pomp and fanfare, nor does he need the intimidation factor of an army and a war horse. Because donkey and all, the crowds are flocking still to Jesus. And it's not a small crowd. Sometimes I picture like the children's Bible picture, and it's like Jesus on the little donkey, and there's kind of like 20 disciples walking with him like this or whatever. No, no, no. This is a huge crowd. 
We know this from the book of John. John is one of the other four stories, gospels we call them, about Jesus' life. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises this man Lazarus from the dead. And then after that, they're going towards Jerusalem. So I'm going to go into John at the exact same point we are at Luke. And here's what we see in John chapter 12, verse 19. It says, So the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are the people that are trying to kill Jesus, So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And everybody is starting to follow Jesus. Why? Because of who he is. Who he is. It's his healing touch. It's the fact that nobody, for so many of these people, no one in the world will even look them in the eye. And Jesus looks right at them and he sees them. And he gets them. It's the fact that He looks right at them and sees all of their sin, and yet he's still willing to forgive them. Jesus doesn't need a show. Jesus doesn't need to be in power to change the world. I think many of us as Christ followers would do well to remember this today. It is the humility of Christ. It is the message of Christ. It's the love of Christ that truly changes the world. Let me ask you kind of a historical question. Okay, so when Jesus rides into town on this young donkey, do you think that the Roman governor at the time, Pontius Pilate, or even King Herod, a little sort of local area king, do you think that when they heard Jesus came in on a little donkey, do you think they were shaken in their boots? They probably laughed, right? Or or what about Caesar in Rome? Do you think he thought that this man coming into town on a donkey was going to undo his Roman Empire and their never-ending thirst for world domination? I'm sure Caesar didn't even hear about it. And yet, in just a few centuries, even Rome would bow their knee to Jesus. And it's not because Jesus came on a war horse and took Israel back for God and sat on the throne in Jerusalem. No, 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 no. Listen to me carefully here, American Christians. Spiritual revival came precisely because Jesus didn't come on a war horse, but on a donkey and humbly agreed to die in the place of sinners like us. And so Jesus is calling out to every one of you today, and he's inviting you to follow him more closely, whether you've never known Jesus or you've already been following him for 60 years. And Jesus Christ does not come to you on a war horse with his sword drawn demanding that you follow him. No, he comes on a donkey. And the decision to accept him as your king is yours. But I assure you that if you study it, and if you don't know that much about it, one of the things I want you to do is I want you to take one of these Bibles today. That's our gift to you. And start to study it for yourself. Open up, start reading through the book of Luke, this book that we're reading right now, and study it. I assure you that what you will find is the only logical way to live is to live like Jesus is king. And the people of the crowd that day, they live that way. In fact, they're rightly praising Jesus as king. Let's keep reading our passage now. So open it back up, uh, page 717. And now we're at uh, verse 36. So as he, Jesus, went along, 
people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, so he's kind of going down into Jerusalem now, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is, so they're quoting the Old Testament here, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Okay, so verse 36, we see people are spreading their cloaks on the road which we have historical precedent for this. This is what people did when a king came to down. Uh, even in the Old Testament, you see the Second Kings chapter 9, uh, when Jehu is announced as king, immediately the people take their cloaks off and they spread them on the ground. But listen to me, you don't take your cloak off and spread them on the ground when a good teacher comes to town. You don't take your cloak off and spread it on the ground when a self-help guru comes to town. You do that when the king comes to town. And Matthew And Mark, two of the other writers who tell us about the life of Jesus, they tell us that the people also took palm branches, that's where we get Palm Sunday from, and they laid them on the ground as the king walked by. In verse 38 of our passage, there's that quotation from the Old Testament. If you trace the footnote, you see that's from Psalm 118, which if you read it, it it says, save us, that's Hosanna. Save us, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the king, the Messiah. Jesus is the king. And they're welcoming him as king because Jesus truly can be no one else in your life but king. Because that's who he is. There are not other options on the buffet table. And I think American Christianity has really kind of messed this up. Because if you make Jesus out to be some sort of self-help guru... And he's the guy who's just kind of primarily there to help you not get angry. He's to help you improve your marriage or your career. He's there to kind of help you improve your happiness. Well, I assure you, you truly aren't following the real Jesus. And if you've just made Jesus out to be a good teacher that came to earth, and he's got really good ethics you can learn from and help you be a better person, I assure you, you don't know the real Jesus. And if you've just made Jesus out to be someone whose central aim is to help Christians gain political votes or political power, then you definitely don't understand Jesus Christ. In fact, the whole context of these few chapters in Luke is against that premise. Because that's what the people thought 2,000 years ago. They thought, okay, here we go. We're almost at Jerusalem. Jesus is going to get on the war horse. And then he's going to throw down on Pontius Pilate. And then he's going to take the throne in Jerusalem. And we will take Israel back from the Romans. And yet here comes Jesus riding in on almost a baby donkey. And five days later gets nailed to a cross. His kingdom does not look like the kingdoms of this world. Jesus is not someone that you use in any way to help you establish your kingdom. He is king. And we just each have to decide, each and every one of us, do we want to live in truth, in reality, like Jesus is king, or do we want to lie to ourselves and live as if we're in charge? And a lot of people do that. Most people do that. It's not living in reality, but we live as if we're in charge, but we're not. 
The Pharisees, for example, the, the religious Jewish leaders of the day, they choose to just live in this false reality. They don't want Jesus to be king. They're incensed that Jesus is coming in like this. They can't believe that people are calling this man king, this man who forgives prostitutes and tax collectors. Let me show you how this passage finishes. finishes. So this is verse 39 now. So some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Like, how dare they call you king? Look at verse 40. I love this. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. He's saying, you can't change reality. And the reality is, even if nobody says it, the stones are going to say it. I am king. And the question for every single person in here is, will you acknowledge him as king? Will you make a decision to do that and live as if he is king? Or will you live in a false reality? And there are many people that don't live as if Jesus is king. There are many people in this church that call Jesus king, and they come and they worship Jesus as king, but you don't live as if he's king. And if somebody were to look at your life closely, and they looked at your schedule and your activities, and they looked at the decisions you make, they would say, he's not your king. You're the king. You're the queen. Is he your king? Are you living in truth and reality? For many Americans nowadays, we treat Jesus more like he's a consultant that we could call on if things got tough rather than a king. But he is the king. He came as a king. He is the king. He will always be the king. If you're really going to follow him, surrender your whole life to him. It's the only way to live, and it is the best way to live. In fact, what I want to do right now, I want to take a few minutes, and we want to share with you some stories of some people who've decided at somewhere along their lives to make Jesus their king. In fact, I'm going to call our baptismal team up right now. Uh, they're going to get our baptism, baptismal ready because this is baptism Sunday for us. And I want to show you, I, just want, I don't want to just talk about what it means for Jesus to be king. I want you to see what it looks like, what Jesus can do uh, in your life. And so you're going to hear some stories from people who've decided to follow Jesus, and then you're also going to get to see them be baptized. Now, baptism, this is really important. A baptism does not save you. It's our faith in Jesus that saves us. A baptism is a symbol of what happens when you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Because the Bible teaches when you believe that Jesus died for you, in a sense, your sins have been washed clean. It happens. We'll figure it out. Uh, <clears throat> actually, there was a lot of sin on that particular thing, and it just needed, it needed a washing. Um, so, I have to refocus on what I'm talking about here. <laughs> but it's a symbol, right? It's a symbol of what Jesus Christ can do when you believe in him. And so, throughout the day, uh, we are baptizing seven different people, and we have a special treat for you this service. Uh, we have four people getting baptized, and this is really cool. Uh, four siblings are going to be baptized. So you have two brothers uh, and two sisters. Uh, the, the brother's going to come up in just a second here, and they are going to give their uh, testimonies. They'll be baptized together, and then uh, the sisters as well. And you'll see, we do this every time people get baptized here. Uh, we have someone who comes in as a sponsor, someone who's made a spiritual impact on their life, and I, I pray that will be you. 
in someone's life uh, soon enough. And so uh, we're going to begin with our first testimony. So I'll call the brothers, Austin and Carter, if you want to uh, come up. I'll get the microphone uh, ready for you. And then uh, we will be excited to hear your testimony. And I don't even remember which of my parents was there to lead me in the prayer. Um, so maybe you're thinking, like, wow, you know, how could you have no memory of what's supposed to be the most important decision of your life? Shouldn't it be more meaningful than that? You know, was it even genuine? Were you too young? But it's like Pastor David always says, there's nothing magical about a prayer or the moment. It's really what comes next that matters. God transformed my life on that day, and my belief in Jesus as my Savior has grown since then. He's been leading me and guiding my steps every day. I've gone through some pretty difficult times, including some life-altering health issues, And it could have brought me to a really dark place, but it didn't. And that's because I knew that God was by my side and had a plan for me through it all. That's not to say that my spiritual walk has been anywhere close to perfection. There have been seasons of my life where battles with sin created distance in our relationship. But God has continued to pull me back into his arms with love and grace each time and shown me how helpless I am on my own. I'm so thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus for my sin and the freedom I have in him. Uh, baptizing me today is my dad, Kurt. He's a man of God whose faith I really admire, and he's been such a great leader in our family. All right. Greetings, Renovation Church. Uh, My name is Carter Wetzel. I'm 22 years old, the youngest of four. My earliest memory of my faith was in first grade. I remember it was Easter, and my family was sitting at the dinner table talking about the life of Christ. I remember hearing that Christ died on the cross for me. There was a weight to that. Christ died for me? I remember shedding tears, feeling the full weight that God loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me. I remember accepting Christ in my life that night, And I have never forgotten it since. Fast forward to college, my faith was struggling. I was carrying shame, fear, and the skeletons of some of my choices in high school. My mentor, Brody, who will be baptizing me today, uh, went on a walk with me one night. Um, I remember that I was feeling empty, like I didn't deserve the love of God. Brody smiled at me and he told me that God has always been there for me and that he was with us right there and then. This is the beginning of a turning point for me to with, with uh, embracing my identity as a child of God. But there was one last major tribulation. It was late in the freshman year, and I was on fire for God. I remember asking him, God, like, what do you want from me, God? What does it mean to serve you? And I remember hearing everything. I want your whole heart. And I remember in my brokenness responding, No. And so that is what the last three years have been, is climbing out of that spiritual place of selfishness and pride. The realization that I will always be a child of God and that I am fully devoted to giving my whole heart and purpose to God despite my brokenness. God has been with me through it all, and for that I am eternally grateful. My name is Francesca, and like 
all my siblings, I grew up in a Christian household and accepted Christ at around six years old. I do remember specifically that I was saved. However, when I was in seventh grade, I attended a camp where after listening to a message, I was struck by how incredibly selfish I was and awed that God loved me, that very selfish me, and also wanted to save that selfish me from the slavery of sin. That day, I rededicated my life to Christ, and this allowed me to overcome the doubt that somehow I would still end up in hell and help me to set aside the guilt I had felt of all my daily failures. However, over time, I began to struggle to display Christ in my life, and being Christian simply became a title. Throughout my high school and college years, maintaining certain relationships and having academic success became my priorities. I looked for school and to people for affirmation in my life. But before I knew it, I was done with college. I had graduated. And I was realizing how tightly my identity had been wrapped up in school. As I grappled with this, I felt a nudge from God to read the Bible every day and to invest in two different small groups. It was both a stretch for me socially, but also spiritually. In that year, I grew in my trust for God, but I also saw all the things I'd held to get pulled out from underneath me. The few people I had held who were close friends over the past four years left my life in an abrupt and devastating way. And I remember feeling so frustrated that as I was growing with God, he also allowed the pain that these relationships had brought. But that time also brought me closer to him, and he offered comfort in the time I spent with him daily, and the small groups were an integral part of my growth during that time. Looking back, I see that I was so tightly putting my identity in relationships and academics, I was not looking to see what God could be doing in my life. And these distractions prevented me from living in the plan he had for me. Since then, I've been growing in my identity in Christ. I'm trying to put him first and listen to the steps and leaps that he leads me toward. I find that following God's plans gives a sense of freedom that I never had before when I tried to manipulate my success through relationships or achievements. By allowing the Spirit to lead me in my decisions, I've seen God step up and move again and again in amazing ways. My journey is far from over, but as I continue to place my identity in Christ, I'm taking this opportunity to obey God and continue to stand in the identity I find in him. Um, my parents have been an integral part of my journey throughout the years, so I've chosen my father to baptize me today. Hello, I'm McKenna. Um, like my siblings, I grew up in a Christian home and gave my small little life to Christ at the age of six, thanks to my brother Austin. Um, since then, I have learned one thing in particular. The seasons of life that I am close to the Holy Spirit, carving out time daily to read and pray, investing in my spiritual life above all else, those are the seasons that I can hear God's voice crystal clear. I spent the early part of my Christian life totally saturated in the Word. I was learning to hear the still small voice of God for most of my adolescent years. Hearing God's voice undoubtedly brought a sense of calm to growing anxiety, a sense of peace when I was unsure about my future, and attuning to how the Holy Spirit was moving me as a follower of Christ. I distinctly remember in college dislocating my knee, and yet being so tuned into Christ at the time 
that I heard the Lord say, I am making you brave. In fact, I have it written down on a note card that I keep in my Bible, dated November 20th, 2016. God was speaking. I was listening. But the small medical mishap of dislocating my knee left me confused. Brave for what? I'd never broken a bone in my life and did not have a complicated medical past whatsoever. To add to this, during a college worship session, a stranger approached me and said, I just want you to know that the Lord sees you as valiant. I wrote that one down too. But valiant? It's another word for courageous. I kept listening, leaning into the spirit, knowing that the Lord was preparing me for something. The scary thing about being told that you're brave and courageous is that you then know something is coming uh, that will require you to be brave. So I'm sure you might be curious about where all this Holy Spirit speaking got me. Well, um, on the night before I was supposed to leave the country to study abroad in England, my senior year of college, I had a stroke. I was with friends that night and was within eight minutes of being behind the wheel driving home alone. If we had left that restaurant eight minutes sooner, I would be dead. The stroke was caused by an unknown hole in my heart that doctors believed was large enough to cause major complications in future childbirth or even death. And get this, after heart surgery, I flatlined. I'm alive, and I think that is a miracle. Post-stroke was one of the hardest and yet most peaceful seasons of my life. Hard because all of my plans were put on hold. I started going to counseling as I lost all confidence in my body and was terrified to get behind the wheel. And yet I had so much peace. God had been preparing me for this moment in my life for quite literally years. He'd been speaking softly over me and I was learning to listen. And I found that because I was listening, that big life-changing moment and the subsequent months following were not as anxious as they might have been. I was not fearful, but rather brave. Now, I will say this, I am not always the best at listening. But I do wonder the things I might be missing when I'm not listening. What preparing, molding, and shaping is Christ trying to softly do in my own life that I'm not hearing? All this to say, um, I felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to be baptized by my husband, Dakota, while in the pool with my dad, um, mostly because it's written all over scripture and because it's about time. It takes a little bravery to stand up here and share a part of my story, but it's what God's been preparing me for this whole time. Thank you. This is amazing. You know, since we opened up this place in February, uh, we've now seen almost 20 decisions for Jesus Christ and 13 baptisms. Uh, Just come on. Uh, God is moving here, and I would say to each and every one of you, Easter is only seven days away, and absolutely, you got to bring somebody here on Easter so they can hear about Jesus. Uh, my hope, my prayer for you is that it's you in this baptismal a month from now, three months from now, and you're baptizing your parent, your adult children, your brother. God is, God is doing that here. It's happening. And I, and I pray that you walk out in faith of this week. And for those of you that are here, and you're hearing about Jesus in a different way today. 
You're hearing about him as we're just reading the Bible to you. You're hearing about it from the stories that he is the king who can change your life. He's the king that can give you peace. He's the king that when you, as a young person, have a stroke, that he can still give you peace. And you're going, I absolutely need that in my life. I would just tell you, accept Jesus in as your king today. Do not leave here without doing that. Because he wants to be in your life. If you've ever said to yourself, I just don't know if God loves me. My life is up and messy. I feel, I would, I will tell you how much God loves you. This same humble king who came on a donkey five days later died on a cross. And did you know why he died? He died on a cross because he was dying for your sins. He was literally taking the punishment that you deserved for all of your sin in your place. So don't ever question, does God love me? He loves you so much, he let his own son die in your place. But you cannot be in a relationship with him like you heard from these people. You cannot be forgiven by him unless you accept him in as your king and as your savior by believing he died on the cross for you. And when you do that, he will forgive all your sins. And instead of your sins being on you, because if you die and your sins are still on you, then that, that's how people go to hell. But if you would believe in Jesus, he will take the sin off of you God will take this and off of you onto his son, Jesus, and you will be washed clean in his eyes. And God will come into your life and change your life. And there's some of you here that you just need to say, God, I, I accept you and I need you in my life. You are my king. I believe you died for me. And I want to give you that chance right now, okay? The best time to follow Jesus, to bring him into your life, it's not a month from now, it's not a year from now, it's today, Okay? So let's just do this. Let's have everybody just bow their heads and just close their eyes. If that's you and you need Jesus, you need to accept him as your king, to admit you cannot save yourself, to believe he died in your place, and you want to do that for the first time, you can do that right now, and he will forgive everything you've ever done, and he will come into your life, and you can have a relationship with him. But it's not automatic. It takes you saying, Lord Jesus, come into my life. And if that's you and you need to make him king, you need to be forgiven. What I want you to do, if God is putting this on your heart and your heart's beating fast and you, you know you need to do this, what I want you to do is I want you to just stand up where you're at right now as a way to mark that line in the sand that you're accepting Jesus as your king and letting him forgive you. If that's you, no one's looking at you, would you just stand up where you're at right now? Go ahead and just stand. I'll give you about 10 seconds or so. If you just know it's time to be forgiven, time to have him come in, would you just stand where you're at? Just real boldly to let him come into your life and forgive you. Amen. All right, if you're, if you're standing right now and you want Jesus into your life, I want you to pray with me. This is not a magic prayer. It's just a prayer to tell God where you're at. You just repeat after me whether you're believing for the first time or you've believed for a long time. We'll just pray this after me. Dear God, I confess to you that I've sinned against you. 
But God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to take my place. God, I thank you for forgiving my sins. And now I commit to following you with my life. As everyone still has their eyes closed, if you made a decision to follow Jesus today, whether you stood up or maybe you didn't even stand up because you're like, I'm not standing up in front of evil, but you want to follow Jesus. What I want you to do is, before I end the service, I want you to walk out into the lobby. In fact, our follow-up team is going to walk out with you. You won't be the only one. And I will meet you out there in one minute. And I'm just going to give you some really important next steps to follow Jesus so you know what to do. And even if you didn't stand up, you can come out. And we will find you, and I will help give you some next steps, okay? And so if you're standing now, everyone has their eyes closed, I want you to go out into the lobby. Or if you still want to make this decision, go out into the lobby right now. I'll meet you out there in just a second. A number of people are going, and I will... Uh, I'll pray and I'll meet you out there in a second. Lord, thank you uh, for today, God, what you're doing. Uh, we thank you for just the testimonies, for your grace, and that you are real, and that you can be in our life right now. And I thank you for new life, God, uh, even right here in this service. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.